Yes, yes, episode 112 of the Independent Minded Podcast. Thanks for turning it on. We know you have many choices in podcasts, and for some reason only known to you and your therapist, you've selected this one. And for the rest of you listening in, I hope and trust you're here to hear some poetry from this episode's very special guest. It's Philadelphia's own G-Love. G's got a new album out. Can I call you G? One he produced with legendary blues man Kebmo. More on that later. It's called The Juice. And full disclosure, I didn't know a ton about G-Love before I met up with him backstage before his show at the Hamilton in downtown Washington, D.C. And that's exactly why I wanted to interview him. Because when a dude who's been doing it for a quarter century rolls into town, you take the opportunity to get into his independent-minded brain. And G-Love did not disappoint, nor did the Hamilton, one of the coolest and classiest venues I've been to since I moved down this way. So if you're here for G-Love, you're in for a treat. Dude was open, honest, classy, kind. He poured me some scotch and popped me open a beer. We hung in the dressing room where the usual band stickers and musicians scribble adorned the walls around us. He regales with tales about vocal cord surgery and internet trolls. I test his knowledge of harmonica trivia, and of course he passes with flying colors. But before we get into a very educational conversation with Mr. Love, let's get into... Okay, can we talk about the Grammys? This will be like 100 rants in one because it's an easy target. But Ronnie's got to get his two cents in. <clears throat> over the years, I have enjoyed pooping all over this sham of a musical celebration. It's been folly, really, the show I love to hate. But this year, there was no joy. First of all, I never watch it live. The Grammys and pretty much every award show related to pop culture, it was made for DVRing. Because, you know, in between all the terribleness, there'll be a cool tribute to some grandpa musician I love that I want to see. This year, it was John Prine who got about two bars of one of his songs played by Bonnie Raitt, while the immortal Nipsey Hussle got a full five-minute tribute featuring the equally immortal DJ Khaled, or DJ Khalid, as he's referred to by Sharon Osbourne. And hey, in between all the horribleness, I can fast forward to a performance by a band or artist I actually love and respect. Maybe Beck, or Pearl Jam, or Adele, or Metallica, or even Bruno Mars. This year, the closest thing I got to that was Aerosmith and Run DMC, doing a rusty version of their played-out tune from 35 years ago. And then, of course, there was the rest. I'll reserve most of my rancor for the usual suspects. Ariana Grande sleepwalking through her reimagining of a Mary Poppins song. Demi Lovato's big comeback from doing too many drugs. Alicia Keys everywhere on the broadcast, making me wonder, is LL Cool J now out of the demo? And an in-memoriam with no introduction and an awkward ending where Alicia and Dua Lipa came out to say what's up, instead of respecting the dead with the standard fade to black straight into a L'Oreal commercial. Yep, all the bile reserved for what's going on behind the scenes at the Recording Academy is well earned. But let's not lose focus on the real issue, and a long-standing one at that. The Grammys suck. They've sucked for as long as I can remember. Or at least for as long as Adam Levine's been alive. Where's Stevie Wonder? Where's Paul McCartney? Shit, where's Dave Grohl? But hey, Tool won a Grammy. John Williams won two Grammys. Dave Chappelle even won a Grammy. Does that make it better? Did we see any of it? Hell no. Gotta make more room for Lizzo. 
And it's funny, you'll hear in the interview G. Love saying he hopes to score a Grammy nomination for Best Contemporary Blues Album for The Juice. And that's the problem. Because in spite of this rant, shit, I'd love to win a Grammy. It's still somehow the gold standard of musical accomplishment. At least as far as the establishment is concerned. But the establishment don't give a flying nun about me or you or probably even G-Love. They're too busy putting out fires on stage and off. And while those fires keep burning, the Grammys just keep blowing smoke. Alright, Garrett Dutton, G-Love. This is an epic interview with the dude who brought you Cold Beverage, nine albums with his band Special Sauce, three solo albums, countless tours, bootleg albums, dude even has a Christmas album. He's a lifer, he's a lover, he's a dad. G-Love and I talk about power naps, politics, Brooklyn accents, beards, Brushfire Records, and being hazed by Keb Mo. Let's kick it off with Soul BQ from the new album The Juice, then my conversation with G-Love, right here on Independent Mind. It's Ron Dalzo's amazing podcast. It's Ron Dalzo's amazing podcast. He's talking to people who make all the music. He's plugging their projects. He's making them famous. He's helping them out just by making them talk about all the bullshit that they do. Hey, yo, G, what's up with the Soul BQ? Feel good, hang all night, hooting and high. 
Missy can't hold your liquor or you're feeling bad We gon' send your ass home in a taxi cab But we gon' keep her going, don't you worry about that Call all the kittens, call all the cats Where's that girl, you know by the end of the road All night long, that's the way we go Is anybody hungry? Yeah! You better get a plate Okay! Won't take long, it'll be all gone So don't you hesitate Now don't you feel bitter? Yeah! I knew you would Okay! Come on into my house It's all right, it's all good Cause it's a bebop, a loobop, a bebop, a lie You don't need no invitation, you just drop on by It's time to get up and throw down a funky stew It's a low down, hold down, sober cue Got it. <laughs> you want to tell me Check uh, one, two. pre-show rituals? We're drinking scotch right now. You're the first independent-minded podcast guest to offer me some scotch. Okay, cheers. so good on you for that. <laughs> you said you got to save your voice. So how do you uh, associate with the fans without worrying about taking it too far as far as hurting your voice? Well, I'm in I'm in good voice now. You know, my voice has been really good on this tour, which is great, and that's why I'm trying to keep it. I had vocal surgery in 2008. I had a bilateral hemorrhages on my vocal folds. Yikes. So they're basically like full of blood. So I, I couldn't produce any, a sound, you know what I mean? That was a pretty scary moment. And since then, I've taken the voice a lot more seriously. It just kind of happens after 15 years like of you know, being on the road, doing a ton of shows, partying, and not knowing anything about the voice, no proper training or anything like that. Actually, Citizen Cope is a good friend. And he's like, yeah, I do a vocal lesson before every show. I said, what? So I started doing it with his teacher, this woman, Donna Newman. So my pre-show ritual, basically, like, like I do this interview, and then I do the VIP performance. But then I'll take a nap, and then I get up about an hour and 15 before the show. And then I'll take a vocal lesson, 10-minute meditation. I'll write my set list out, you know, get dressed. And then it's like, come on, let's go. <laughs> Taking a nap before a show, that's something I, I don't really hear a lot about. Really? Yeah, I feel oh, like... Oh, man, everybody in my band does everybody it. Everybody together, or well, in do the, you snuggle up the three of you? Or? <laughs> Pretty much. I mean, we're all on a tour bus in our bunks, like in, you know, Bunk Alley. But yeah, it's the disco nap, man. It's kind of the restart. It's, it's kind of like a reset. You know, the day was the day, and now we're going to take a nap and wake up fresh and energized and... 
like my job comes to play for that hour and a half, two hours when I'm on stage. So everything during the day of a show day is like geared towards that time. Because if you fuck that time up, then you fucked up your whole day. You know? <laughs> and if, if so you, you want to be fresh and you want to be rested and yeah, just ready to like go out and throw it down. You know, Citizen Cope was a guest on this podcast and he never mentioned anything like this. Well, he so. doesn't take a nap. I'm, I'm pretty sure he doesn't take a nap. <laughs> you swap napping well, no, like, stories? Like, no, like I said, we're good, we're good buddies, so like we talk about this kind of well, I'm stuff. Saying, that fascinates me that two kind of like legendary indie musicians would have a conversation <laughs> on, on, on that sort of topic, you know? I've been studying with his vocal teacher for four years, and that's before every show. So I'm taking like, you know, 150 vocal lessons from this woman, this crazy woman in New York. And, and that's what a lot of people don't understand. Like LeBron James doesn't just walk in the stadium and jump ball, let's go, you know. It's like a process to get him warmed up with his trainer and his coach and everything to get him ready for the show. And then same thing after the show. Uh, and it's just amazing that singers, we're relying on this little tiny muscle, which is the size of your thumbnail, that's driving our livelihood and our passion and everything else. And not too many people, including myself before, really know much about the voice, let alone like take the time to like do a simple warm up. It's just an interesting part of the culture of being a musician. It got me in trouble. So now I respect it more, and that's the analogy, man. Does LeBron go on, on the game without warming up? No, well, I don't go on the stage without warming up. And you are the LeBron <laughs> of independent music, let's face it. Oh, thanks, <laughs> man. Wow, I never – I got – what's a championship? Well, let me let – me, I don't uh, know if that's true, but thank you. I, I'm, 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 I'm culling all this wisdom, and that's part of the okay. reason I do this podcast. I've been doing it for a while, and, and I moved down to D.C. about a year and a half ago, and this is my first time at the Hamilton. Have you played here before? We have. This is our – I think this is our third time, which you could tell by the – Different tags I have all oh, over the Oh, you've signed the walls. I got it, yeah. Oh, here's Danzig. I got a bunch of different. Yeah. Oh, where's Danzig? Oh, yeah. He cool. could have done better than that. That's really him, I was going to say. <laughs> <laughs> that looks suspicious to me. Man. Well, I'm... Then here's the Beatles. <laughs> Who do you think did that? Was that Ringo or, or George? <laughs> I think this is Danzig did that. Dancing in the Beatles. <laughs> well, part of the reason I wanted to interview you is back when I was in college, I overlooked some artists that I probably shouldn't have. I was the music director of my college radio station, so every CD on the planet came my way before right, it made its right. way onto the airwaves of Brooklyn wow. College Radio in Brooklyn, wow. New York. I was just going to say, you're from New York, aren't you? Why, what, could you tell from the accent? <laughs> yes. I'm not even drunk. Usually people can tell when I'm drunk or tired. <laughs> Well, you're from Philly, right? Yeah. Hey, you don't like. I don't. Is there a Philly accent? Yeah. You guys want to go get some hoagies? Oh yeah. And, uh, water ice. Water ice. Water ice. You want water in your scotch? <laughs> we say water, like water. Water. Like, hey. I'd like to think that over the past, you know, I've been working in radio my entire life. I'd like to think I've kind of hidden <laughs> <laughs> the Brooklyn accent a little bit, but maybe I should just roll with it. I don't roll know. with it, man. All right. So part of the reason I want to talk to you is to apologize. Oh, this is shit. part of my podcast okay, apology you. tour. Because when I was younger and you just had kind of put your first album out, I overlooked it. And certainly I've heard G Love and Special Sauce, the name, and probably heard a song there or seen a video there. But I never went down the rabbit hole in the way that I feel like as a music aficionado and a podcaster and a music journalist, I should have. So when I saw you coming to the Hamilton, I took it as an opportunity. I said, now's my chance to kind of go down the rabbit hole and explore something that I should have like, Damn, how did this ago. motherfucker have a record deal? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I do want to talk about that because <laughs> in the mid-90s, you started out as like a street performer, right? In Boston? Yeah. And then 
pretty quickly, I'm sure it was a whirlwind for you, you got scooped up by Sony, right? Yeah, and, yeah, that's right. And now, however many years later, you're doing it on your own. You've been on an indie label for a while. That's Jack Johnson's label, right? Well, actually, yeah, but now, um, actually, the new release, G Love the Juice, that's actually our first truly independent record because that's on our label, Philadelphonic Records. So you started your own label. Yeah. We've always had the label, but we've never released anything. Um, other than like the bootlegs we sell at the shows, but this is like our first like official release, so it's pretty cool. It's with the blessing of you know Jack and the Brushfire team. You know that was a great family and still is our family. Um, it's just a general consensus of where the record business is at. I mean, no one buys records, so it's always been a labor of love for those guys, the Brushfire Records, because obviously like Jack sells the most records, and they put out mostly you know whoever Jack was buddies with right friends and yeah. people he admires yeah a boutique sort of yeah label style we did pretty good for them like we sold some records and we might have made them a little bit of money but anyway it was labor love and it was just time for them to kind of you know and when i wanted to make a record it was they didn't have their budget from universal so it was a good opportunity for us to finally branch out on our own and that's really what what we wanted to do because coming back to the point no one buys records so if you're going to sell records, you might as well get as much money out of it as you can because it doesn't matter what you do. Right. 20% of nothing is nothing. Right. So that's why I'm a little depressed because I, was gonna say, I this just... Is taking a dark <laughs> turn quickly. No, no. I mean, I'm not depressed, but like I was telling my wife last night, like we just put out... Oh, no, I was telling my manager, <laughs> my other wife, uh, <laughs> I was telling him, you know, we just put that record a week and a half ago and it's been this huge lead up and it's been a long process to make it. I'm really proud of the record. And I feel great about it. And, you know, you put everything you have and then it comes out and then it sold a thousand copies in the week. It's still not bad. It's like 110 on the Billboard charts. Right. No one buys records. Because everything's relative, right? Yeah. In the 90s, that would be a huge failure. Now that's like respectable. Well, that gives me hope as an independent artist. They'll have but to I mean, sell a thousand copies to make it into the Billboard top 200. Yeah. That's what, All I mean, right. Well, no, you, you, you have to sell less than that. You probably could sell... 500 and make it the top 200 because we were like 113 with a thousand records i mean it's crazy so it's a tough time to put out records but i digress well let's talk about this record regardless of how many copies it sold the album is called the juice as you mentioned the first song the title track is political g love right and then it makes a not a sharp right turn but soul which right. which is a fucking earworm and i cannot get it out of my head <laughs> so congratulations yeah that's my favorite it's kind of like uh what did I, I wrote down it's it's protest cookout music okay man i love that and that's what i got from listening to most of your catalog over the last couple of days is that there's that combination of social consciousness and just like hippie jam band, like let's all have a party in the backyard right. style music. Okay, cool. You've never kind of fit into a box. Yeah. You like your first album, you had Cold Beverage, went gold, right? It had, yeah. But yeah. then after that, your solo albums are kind of more bluesy and don't necessarily fit into that alternative hip hop style that you have with Special Sauce. Right. We had this record called The Hustle, which was our first record on Brush Fire. I'll never forget the Rolling Stone review because the Rolling Stone review said... The record is utterly sincere, but completely unfocused. And I knew what the writer was talking about because it's something, and it's you just touched on it. It's like we have a lot of different, we've never been able to fit in the box. And because we kind of are the type of musicians that wear our influences on our sleeve, there's a lot of different styles in our records and in our writing. 
anything from like straight ahead like Johnny Cash Country to straight ahead Muddy Waters Blues to rock steady Jamaican reggae and straight ahead hip hop. It's been both a blessing and a curse. Certainly, like when we've dropped our first record, like we didn't fit in a, in a box. You could walk into Tower Records in Philly and we could be in the alternative section. You could walk into Tower Records in Boston, we'd be in the hip hop section. And now it's hard to market. Well, what is it? Well, I don't know. It's something different. But at the same time, it's something different. So it found a niche, right? And it found a listening audience. So we've had a great career. When I go to make a record now, like, since that review, I try to be really cognizant about it. Like, all right, say I write 20 songs this year. You know, two of them I wrote after listening to Boogie Down Productions and two of them I wrote after listening to, you know, Willie Nelson or whatever. And those styles are in those tunes. With this record in particular, we wrote most of the record, Keb Mo and I, uh, and this guy Gary Nicholson wrote the record kind of from the, from the ground up. Can we talk about Keb Mo? Yeah. Legendary blues man. Did you have... Uh previous relationship with him before you approached him about producing this record with you? Yeah, so the story goes back to the very beginning of both of our careers, because we both were signed in 1993 by uh, an A&R guy named Michael Kaplan to Epic slash Sony Records, and we relaunched the old, quote, race records label, OK Records, spelled O-K-E-H, uh, quote race records because they in the 30s they put out albums by african-american uh, artists including a single by robert johnson anyhow so keb and i relaunched this this old blues label then we kind of went on our separate careers and reconnected 20 years later and uh, did a tour together and then after that we were like you know we kind of reconnect hey we should do something and then that led to me saying yo let's do a duet record Back porch blues and kept it. Man, I already did my. Well, to quote him perfectly, I sometimes don't like to say it, but he goes, "I already shot my duet wad." <laughs> yeah, I did the. I did. The, he's like a seven-year-old guy. Uh, don't quote me. We're on a podcast, so it's all good. But uh, he's like, "But I'll produce you," because he had done a Taj Mahal duet record. Him and Taj Mahal. He invited me down to do some writing, and the first thing he said was. Gee, send me your most five sincere songs, the songs you feel most connected to. And I thought that was kind of like a strange thing yeah. to ask. So I had a bunch of stuff in mind. And, and as a songwriter, I'm sure you can relate. Like, you know, you hope you feel truly connected and sincere about everything you're writing, right? Even the stuff that's funny or whatever, it's an emotion. You're connected to it, you know? So anyway, I sent him five tunes. A week went by, two weeks went by. I didn't hear back from him, so... Text them, kept you get the songs, yes. So he's starting to get insecure. He just imagine. said, Yeah. Well, he just said, I said, Text him, did you get the music? And he just texted back, Yes. Great. Okay. So now you have to ask, like, what every songwriter doesn't really want to ask. Like, you want to hear, Yes, I heard them. They're great. Exactly. Come to the studio. Instead, right, he yeah. goes, Yes. And I go, All right. What did you think? And then he texts back, I think you need to go into the songwriter. <laughs> did he so, really say Yeah. That? He said it. So I was like, All right. Well, you know, whatever, I've been doing this a long time. Like, I've had plenty of people tell me my songs suck. So, all right, cool. So, went down Nashville, and he put me with this guy, Gary Nicholson, who's also like a Grammy award-winning kind of blues songwriter. And anyhow, we wrote this song called Fix Your Face, which is on the record. And um, I just had a bunch of ideas on my phone, and, and I was going through them. He goes, Sachi, what do you want to 
the music shouldn't be a problem, but what do you want to write about today? Is this your What's Kevin the thing? Oh, this is Gary Nicholson. Oh, this is Gary. <laughs> <laughs> Gary, what do you want to write about? And I said, well, I don't know. I got this idea. So I'm saying my little sticky phrases. I go, fix your face. All you need is a smile, right, to fix your face. Fix your face. It only takes a little while. You don't need no paint and powder. All you need is a little smile. And Gary said, well, I think Kev would really like that sentiment because you know, Kev kind of likes positive kind of. Right. So we wrote that tune, and we went the next day with Keb, and then, and it was interesting working with Keb because one of the lines was, uh, this guy made you cry and your mascara's running. And Keb said, you can't, a blues man doesn't say mascara. It's like, you can't have that it's word in the song. Word, yeah. You can't put that word in the blues song. So then we said, you done messed up your makeup, you got shadows on your eyes. <laughs> but it was so it's kind of thing. So Keb had all these like certain rules, like there's certain chord progressions that would disqualify you from being like a blues tune and there's certain lyrical choices that would disqualify it from being a blues in Keb's eyes and the goal with working with Keb was really to get a look for a contemporary blues Grammy that was my you know my, my material goal as part of this project so it sounds like he was a little hard on you. Oh, yeah, man. Yeah. No, he, and so you're able to check your ego. It sounds like, you know, based on your personality, you're able to kind of check your ego at the door because this is Kebmo. So. I always look at the producer-artist relationship as a player-coach relationship. If you're a great hoops player, you're going to listen to coach. Coach is going to make you better. So it's the same thing with music. So when I go into the studio, I'm going into Keb's world, literally into his house. The studio is in the basement of his house. The first night, we go to cut that song, Fix Your Face. So Kev said, okay, we're going to try the vocal. All right. So I'm just sitting on the you know, SM58 in this control room. All right, G, let's hear it. Fix Your Face. All right. The first line. Fix your face, baby. And he kept, no, not like that. Like this, G. Fix your face, baby. All right, okay. Let me try again. Fix your face. No, no. So this shit went on until like 3 in the morning on every line. Oh, man. And I'm, so I'm at 3 in the morning sitting in the studio with two guys that are 70 years old. And they're the funniest two guys. Keb's like, he's taller than me. He's like 6'5", skinny, tall, lanky, African-American guy. And then you got um, Gary Nicholson who's this short, kind of frumpy white dude. Physical opposites. And uh, they're physical <laughs> opposites, and they're like best friends, and it's so funny to like, and I'm like, I'm hanging out with two senior citizens at three in the morning in the studio in Nashville. Like. Right. And then the next day I came in, and he goes, you know, I was just messing with you, right? I just want to see if you were here to work. Really? Okay. Yeah. So I was going to say, like, it sounded like a, like a Rocky Mickey sort of, sort yeah. of battle where yeah. he was... Uh, he wanted you to catch the chicken, so you, you know, eat lightning and crap thunder. Exactly, like, you know, that in a was blue it. sort of way, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, the song "The Juice." I don't like to talk politics on the podcast, even though I'm in the epicenter of the universe here. It sounds like you're encouraging people. We got the juice. Time's up. Right. Do you firmly believe in your heart that people can make a change in 2020, the way things are unfolding Whew. around us right now? Someone was telling a story. At a lecture I went to recently on, on voting in the United States, an interesting fact is that only 50% of our population votes. And we rank in the world as far as free and clear democratic elections way down on the list, close to like countries like Rwanda and other countries that we consider to be you know, third world or developing countries. That's where we rank in the world as our election process. 
And that's probably the root of the problem of everything that is wrong with our government. There was a story that this woman, Sophie McLennan, told the lecture that Michael Moore and Steve Bannon walked into a, a bar together because they're having you know lunch or whatever. And part of the conversation was Michael Moore said, um, when it gets down dirty, why do you guys always win the fights? And, he go, and Steve Bannon said, well, because liberals come to a, the fight with a pillow and the right wing comes to the fight with a knife. And then I remember back to like 2015 when I was home and like, you know, the news was on and um, Hillary Clinton just announced her run for presidency. I thought, man, that's really cool. Like a woman's going to run for president. Like how cool would that be? I took a picture to TV and I put like hashtag, that's right, the women are smarter. The blues on the Grateful Dead made famous. And that's all I put. I didn't even know if I was for Hillary or not. Nothing about that. It was just like about a woman. And then, man, my socials like you got blew up. Yeah. And I had no idea how much people hated Hillary Clinton. And it was all this stuff like unfollow. I've been a lifelong fan. I'll never buy your records again. You should stick to music. Stop talking about politics. And that to me was like the ultimate. Like, yo, have you not heard of anything on any of my records from any record that I have? There's every part of my life. There's love songs there's songs about fun stuff there's songs about our social and political environment that we're living in and and spiritual songs that was like a real insult so then at that point i was like all right so now i kind of understand what's going on with um like the trolls or not even trolls but just wow i didn't really realize so many asshole republicans were fans of me <laughs> you know what i mean and trust me they all unfollowed me and then i start seeing like well damn look at some of my peers that are musicians because everyone's so tied to like the music business now and everyone's so cognizant of the business side of what we all do out here that no one wants to lose a paying customer a ticket sold at a show or a record sold no one wants to say anything because no one wants to step out and take a side so ultimately on this record and kind of since that time with the hillary clinton thing i just kind of made made up in my mind that i would take a side and so a lot of ways like the juice the title track is a protest song and it's meant to give energy to those protest kids and to the people that are going to rallies and the grassroots politicians that are trying to make a change you're very active on social media there are enough people out there who whether they like or hate your politics they're following what's going on whether you're taking a video of another street performer or right. laughing it's you know something goofy yeah yeah does it feel slimy to you or have you just embraced the technology and and just recognized hey this is what i got to do to promote myself i don't think it ever feels slimy I, I think it's a good way to document like your career like part of my social thing like on instagram like i do my set list every night so i started like really documenting the shows, it is pretty cool to think about that, like all your photos, it's like your photo album for your life that's always gonna be online and you can go back when you get older and look through it. It's great for narcissists. It's great for narcissists and it definitely brings out that side of I mean, you have to be honest about that. Like photographers ask to come shoot the show, so we they shoot the show and they take pictures and I say, oh, this is a great picture of me. And then, Right, it's a natural inclination for yeah. what we do, right? I want to kind of shift that to photographers like taking more pictures of like the crowd's experience at a G Love and Special Sauce show because I think that the more you're able to throw it back, like everything you do to the experience that you're giving the people, I think that that's really the way to go. The other part of social media is yeah, it's fucked up because it can really ruin your day a lot of times if you let it because 
you know, no matter what you're doing, there's always going to be someone that's doing something more fabulous. No matter how much success you're having, there's someone that's going to be having more success and less success. And it's like an age-old saying, like, don't compare yourself to others because there's always going to be someone greater than you and someone lesser than you. It's not a recipe for a peaceful mind. In our day and age, it's everything's so much up in your face that it's really something that you have to find a balance with. And as far as working, like when I was a kid coming up, when I wasn't playing my guitar, I was going to Kinko's Copy Center and making stickers and you know, putting them up all over town or like graffiti and special sauce everywhere. So Social networking of the 90s. Yeah, I mean, I've always <laughs> been trying to get our name out there. So this is a way that like I can all day long try to like push forward what we're doing to the people that care. 25 years since your first album has been released, or is it 26 now? 1994. Yeah. So something very unique about you is that you and the band have been together from the beginning. What's the secret behind keeping Special Sauce together with G-Love? It's um, a combination of loyalty and laziness. <laughs> <laughs> Most of the people that work with me, like Chris, my road manager from the house, we've been working together since 1996. Awesome. Uh, Frank, the guitar tech, the crotchety bastard, he's been with us <laughs> He did get fired for two years, but uh, he's been with us for 12, 15 years. I'm getting the dirt here. Okay. Jimmy Jazz has been fired multiple times, but he's been in the band since the beginning. He did, he did get Jimmy Jazz was the first person that got fired. We started the band. We had our first gig, and then he had a, a day job that required him to go for a two-week trip to Mexico City, so we fired him. And, that was, and then we put him back together a couple months later after we made some demos. You know... A, these guys are tremendous musicians. B, we have a tremendous catalog of songs. C, they're both unique musicians. Then there's the laziness part, like, because there's a lot of times when I think, man, you know, I, and I could have gone with a with different band, you know, since the get-go, like, at any time, you know? Because after all, like, I signed a record deal. It was my name out in front of the band, G-Love. Right. And that was the drummer's choice, because I wanted to have the band called Special Sauce. He says it's got to be called G Love and something. That's all right, G Love and Special Sauce. Well, that was nice of him to. And then to he's bitches. The like, well, why is it always about you? Well, you're the <laughs> motherfucker who said G Love. You know. You can I, always throw that back in his face. Right? I do. <laughs> but you know, like um, there are times if I'm having a bad night. For me personally, I had a tough show at the uh, Rams Head on stage in Annapolis the other night. I just was in my head. I couldn't get loose, and I'm thinking I should fire these motherfuckers. You know what I mean? I was like. <laughs> so sick of these fucking so if i'm having a tough night i start blaming <laughs> shit on other people it's something i really try not to do but i <laughs> i do you know it's a misdirection right there this record for instance jim and jeff aren't on the record i recorded it in nashville with keb's guys a big part of me was thinking about putting together a new band for this tour not like firing anybody but just say hey i'm going to do the record next year with some other cats right and then that requires me to like figure out who those cats are going to be. Find those people. I don't have like a clear-cut idea of some other guys that I would do that with. I have other projects. Like I had a band called Jamtown with Cisco Adler and Donovan Frankenrider. Cope and I are talking about doing something. So you have other outlets. Yeah, I have other outlets. And I do a lot of G-Love and Friends gigs. I mean, at any time, any of us can go do whatever the hell we want. Um, and I'm sure we can always come back and enjoy being able to play. And also, just to be able to be 26 years into it and think like, wow, you know, we've done this all together, you know, like it's a, it's a special thing. Yeah, you know? absolutely. All right, I know you got to take a nap. 
I know no, you, I got to do the VIP. I know show. you got to meet the fans. I don't know what order that's happening in. So I got a couple rapid fire questions. Right. You can keep them short if you want, okay. but these are kind of popped into my head on the way to the interview, and I don't want to. I don't want to overlook them. You're a hirsute man. Have you ever grown a beard? I have not. The reason is is that because I do think facial. No offense to you, the bearded one or the guys that I work with. I had a soul patch. But the problem is that I can't really grow a beard or mustache because the, the hairs on top of my lip get caught in a harmonica. <laughs> so I, I, my job prevents me from doing that. But I go scruffy until those hairs start getting pulled out, and then I shave it. You can do like what they do, like the line. The Amish. The I can do the, the, the Amish look. look the yeah. Abraham Lincoln. I, the Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> How would that look? You're a self-described road dog. Is there any place in the world you haven't played yet ha! that you want to play? There's no place in the world that I won't go if we're getting paid to go do a gig. I mean, I've never been to Africa. I've never been to the Middle East. We almost went to Israel, but because of a conflict happening that was resolved by the time the gig would have been, but they canceled the, the festival I was on. All right, this is my first Scotch podcast. Thank Scotch, you again for the Scotch. Scotchcast. Let's uh, droop this down. Yeah. Cheers, man. Cheers. In addition to this being my first Scotch podcast, it's the first time after 100 episodes where I've interviewed somebody who played the harmonica. Okay. Rapid fire, can you name nine harmonica players? Go. Yeah. Sonny Boy Williamson, Little Walter, John Hammond, um, Kev Moe plays a little harmonica, John Popper, uh, Charlie Musselwhite, Jerry Portnoy, James Cotton, um, um, the Hoodoo Voodoo Man, Junior Wells, and um, Sonny Terry. All right, I believe oh. you. I mean, I, I've heard of <laughs> about weird. five of those guys. What about Bob Dylan? I'm just like, he's, Bob he's, Dylan, yeah, he's been a huge Neil inspiration. Young, man. <laughs> <laughs> Philly's own G Love. You may know him, or maybe his family knows him as Garrett Dutton, but we all know him as G Love. Thanks so much for the time, man. I appreciate it. Thanks, man. It'll only take a little while Fix your face, baby It'll only take a little while You don't need no paint and powder All you need is a little smile He comes around I know it hurts you, baby Whenever he comes around Just give me five minutes I'll turn your frown upside down Upside down He was mean and he was ugly all it did was make you cry He done messed up your makeup Got shadows on your eyes Leaving my lipstick litter On the looking glass It only take three words Baby, you can kiss my Fix your face, baby
inside out, inside out. Got those dirty wipes flashing, smiling from inside out. Keep on smiling, baby. There it is, Fix Your Face by G-Love and Special Sauce. Earlier we heard Soul BQ, both off the new album The Juice, available on G-Love's new label, Philadelphonic Records. Get the goods, find out more, see them on tour, all the info at philadelphonic.com. Big, big thanks to G-Love for the conversation, his tour manager Chris, and Rick at the Hamilton for rolling out the red carpet for Ronald, and Michelle Steele at Missing Peace Group for putting us all together. And as always, I save the last dance for you, loyal listener. You've already done your duty by listening. (laughs) Duty. Now go spread the gospel. Tell your friends to listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Spreaker, SoundCloud. Where else are we? Oh, iFartRadio. Follow me online at Bald Freak Music and find out more about me and the podcast at baldfreak.com. Finally, a big thanks to our media partner, The Vinyl District. Get the app on your phone and get pointed towards the nearest record stores in your part of the world. And check out thevinyldistrict.com for cool music features, concert photos, and more. Okay, I'm going to go do some squat thrusts. <laughs> <laughs>